If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, you can find the uh, scripture printed out again for you in the bulletin. We're going to be in chapters 3 and 4. This series is called Jesus is Better. And the reason for that is the writer is encouraging some early Christians not to give up on following Jesus. And one of the things that we've seen in the first couple of weeks is if you want to endure as a Christian, don't first think about how to endure as a Christian. First think about Jesus. And then you'll get to how to endure as a Christian, but you've got to keep your eyes fixed, as we saw, on the one who came into this world to save us. And so let's read again. We're going to see this morning that Jesus is better than anything because he gives us true rest. True rest. Let's read from uh, starting in verse 7. It's a little longer, but settle in. <laughs> so as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and yet rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news preached and proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above quoted, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. As in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day later on. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, 
so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. I don't know what you would say the greatest invitation you've ever received in your life is. Think about that this morning. Uh, We receive invitations all the time. Sometimes they come by mail. Sometimes they come over the phone. Sometimes we disregard them, like when they invite you to extend your car warranty. Again, for the fourth time in the day, you might (laughs) hang up the phone, delete the voicemail, throw away the junk mail. But every now and then you get an invitation that comes from somebody you know, right? And you you put it up on the refrigerator because it's important to you. You want to remember it. But isn't it true that sometimes even when you put it on the refrigerator, you forget it? And you walk by the refrigerator one day and you think, oh, i got to go to that party. You look at the date, and the date has already passed. What happened there? The invitation was more valuable to you in that case than the extended car warranty, obviously. But it wasn't valuable enough for you to actually enter into what it invited you to go into. When invitations are extremely important to you, you not only put them on the refrigerator, you put them in your heart. You know when that date is because you really can't go without going to whatever it is that person that's so important to you has invited you to go to. I remember when I was just graduating from high school, one of the greatest invitations I ever received was to go with a bunch of people to eat dinner with Bobby Bowden. Um, I had received a scholarship to Florida State, not for football, uh, obviously. (laughs) But nevertheless, Bobby Bowden was going to be at this dinner to congratulate the people who, and for other reasons too, but to congratulate those who had received the scholarship. And my parents and I went. And it was with a few, couple hundred folks, so it wasn't just like us and Bobby. But we got the time afterwards to meet him face-to-face, to have our picture with him. He joked around with me. Even he kind of punched me in the stomach, actually. It's a funny thing. I think he was used to, he was used to roughhousing with football players, and he hit the scrawny guy. <laughs> And completely knocked the wind out. When I, got that, when I got that invitation, there was no chance that I was going to forget about it. I grew up loving the Seminoles. I grew up looking up to Bobby Bowden. There was absolutely no chance it was going to go on their fridge and I wasn't going to show up. Now listen to this this morning. Jesus one time gave the greatest of all invitations to every human being on the face of the earth. He said this, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the invitation. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Isn't that amazing? You say, well, I don't know if it's amazing. What does it even mean? What does it mean to get rest from Jesus? Well, this passage is actually designed to show you what that invitation from Jesus meant. It shows us three things if you look at your bulletin today. First of all, it shows us what kind of rest Jesus is promising when he invites us to come to him, to find rest. Secondly, it shows us how not to enter into it. And then lastly, it shows us how we can enter into this great invitation that Jesus gives us to rest. So what kind of rest is it? How not to get into it? And then how to actually get into it. 
First of all, how, well, the kind of rest that, that God promises to us. Uh, you can see there beginning in verse 7, uh, what the writer is doing here is he's basically preaching a mini-sermon. And you, you might say, well, does this mean this is going to be a mini-sermon? No. <laughs> but he's preaching a mini-sermon. I'm going to expand his mini-sermon this morning, right? Um, he's preaching a mini-sermon on Psalm 95, which is what we read in the Old Testament lesson today earlier in the service. And in that scripture reading, it's all focused on that last sentence in verse 11 where God is talking about the Israelites. And he says, they shall not ever be able to enter my rest. Well, when the writer quotes it, remember he's talking to Christians who came from a Jewish background. Uh, they had not just been around the Old Testament for a short time. They had been around it from the time they were knee-high to a grasshopper and before, right? They had memorized Psalm 95. They had sung it probably most Sabbath days because it was one of the most common songs to sing among the Jewish people. And right before it had talked about entering the rest of God and hearing his voice and not hardening your heart, it had said that famous line, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. In other words, what he's trying to get across here is the kind of rest that God invites us to through his son Jesus is far more than merely physical rest. Far more than that. Uh, physical rest is a good thing, right? Uh, this is summertime. We're all thinking about how to get physical rest. It's good when you're working a lot to take a break. It's good to take a day off. It's good to take a week off. Uh, it's good to take a nap sometimes. Isn't that right? But none of those things are what Jesus meant exactly when he said, come unto me and you will have rest. In fact, actually, it's none of those things that God meant when he said from the beginning, keep the Sabbath day and enter into my rest. It really wasn't those things. Now, those things are not, it's not like they're not any part of the Sabbath day. Of course, you have to stop working to keep the Sabbath. And God was teaching us there that our lives are not meant for the purpose of work. We're men instead to work for God, right? And the Sabbath day is a way of reordering our priorities. God first, work second. It keeps us straight on that. However, the essence of what God was saying when he said, come to my Sabbath was, come to me. Today is a day I'm setting apart. I am actually resting on this day from the works I did in creation. And the invitation to human beings is come into my rest. Come into a day of enjoyment and delight with the living God. And so when the writer in verse 7 says, the Holy Spirit says, which by the way, notice he uses the present tense. This tells us a little bit about how he thinks about the Bible. Because he's writing 1,000 years after David wrote Psalm 95. And yet he says the Holy Spirit still says it. Uh, I want you all to know this is what we believe about the Bible at Greater Hope. It's not just a book of what God said. It's also not just a book about what people said about God. It's a book about what God says right now, right here to you. Uh, he, he addresses you directly. Every time you pick up the Bible and read it, every time you hear it read to you or preached to you, it is God speaking directly in the present moment to you. That's what we think about the Bible. That's what the Bible thinks about itself. The Holy Spirit says today 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, here is the kind of rest that God invites us to. It's a rest of understanding that we are sheep underneath his hand. He is our shepherd. His voice is the voice that ought to direct our lives. When we hear his voice, we have to avoid hardening our hearts. Instead, when we hear his voice, we've got to say, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me the kind of person you want to be. That's where real rest comes from. Physical rest will not give you that. Physical rest alone will not give you that. I mean, if you have kids in here, you know this already. When you take your kids on family vacation, don't you come back more tired than when you left? Isn't that right? You need a vacation from your vacation sometimes. Y'all know when you take a day off work, sometimes you go back and realize you got to work harder the rest of the week because you missed a day. That's a bummer, isn't it? Physical rest doesn't get the soul to rest automatically. What gets the human soul to rest is learning how to bow before the maker. Oh, come, Psalm 95 says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Here in our, our passage in Hebrews, today, if you hear God's voice, and you can always hear God's voice if you want to hear it. If you're open to hearing God's voice, here it is. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, soften your heart. Bend your knee. Turn your ear to the Lord. That's where true and genuine soul rest comes from. We say, what's the reason for that? Well, we all, we all know this. True rest corresponds with the kind of exhaustion that you're experiencing, doesn't it? Uh, here's an example. If all day, every day, your work is physical, if, you're, if you work manually, then it's probably not going to be very restful to go home and do projects at home all the time when you're, when you're off, right? It's just the same thing. You're just working one place and then you're working another. In the other direction, if you're, you have a desk job and all day you're inside, you're staring at a computer, you're typing, you're reading, it's probably not going to be a rest to go home and play video games and stare at a computer. The definition of rest is it's an offbeat, right? <laughs> it's on, off, on, off. That's what rest is. It's the opposite of what the norm is. And the reason why true soul rest comes from listening to God is that the norm of our life has become non-listening to God. The norm of our life in sin, from the very first moment that human beings ever sinned, the norm has become not recognizing that he's the shepherd. And instead trying to pretend that I can somehow be my own shepherd. And so Jesus says, not only come to me and I'll give you rest, but he says this, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's rest. And yet sometimes, isn't it true, we're only chasing the physical kind of rest. We multiply vacations, we multiply leisure time, we multiply naps and sleep. Sometimes we don't even do that. And we run ourselves down into the ground and burn ourselves out. But we never give careful attention to the higher view of rest that the Bible invites us into. To coming before God. To understanding how a human soul really does rest in this world. Hearing the voice of the good shepherd. Listening to that voice. 
being willing to do what that voice says, being willing to accept what that voice tells us to accept. The simple question this morning is, and I want you to really think about this. You might not even be able to answer it honestly right now because we are so like, we're so self-deceptive at times, but think about this. Are you rested today? Sitting here this morning in God's presence, are you rested? How would you, how would you answer that? Yes or no? Maybe you are, and that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Maybe you come here today physically rested, but not spiritually rested. Maybe you come here today neither. You're tired physically, you're wore out mentally, and you're also spiritually just wore slap out. Part of what this scripture would tell us is, if we want to enter God's Sabbath rest with a capital S, we got to hear his voice and not harden the heart against him. That's the first thing, the true rest that God promises. Now, secondly, what's the number one way not to enter it? <laughs> See, so if you're here today and you say, I don't want to enter God's rest, well, here's how to do it. <laughs> In fact, this whole passage tells you how to do it because he's, he's talking about Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 was a rebuke. It was a rebuke. Notice what it says starting in verse, the second part of verse 8. Don't harden your hearts like you did before, right? Like you did in the day of rebellion or at Massah and Meribah, those two places in the wilderness where Israel complained and groaned against God and they, they refused to listen. If you know the story of, of the Exodus, Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt and almost the very first thing they did when they got to the desert is grumble against the Lord. And it was funny how they grumbled. They said, oh God, oh that we would just be back in Egypt again. Can you believe they said that? They said, yeah, we were in slavery and that was bad and all. Which, by the way, they were groaning and, you know, when they were in slavery. I mean, they, they were more than groaning. They were heartbroken. But suddenly they said, we were in slavery, but yet we had three square meals a day. And here we are in this barren, sort of seems like a God-forsaken place. We don't even have food or water readily available. We got to wait on God to rain it down from heaven. Wow, if only we were back in Egypt where we had cucumbers and melons and all those wonderful things that we used to eat. Isn't it amazing what happened in the hearts of the Israelites? They rebelled against God, it says, even though, look at verse 9, even though they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation, God said. That's why I swore on oath they will never enter my rest. Did you know that not a single person in Moses' generation, actually entered the promised land. Every single one of them died in the desert on purpose because God chose to do that because they hardened their hearts against God. Now we got to ask, why did that happen? Could that happen to us? Yes, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Well, how does that happen? Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? Sin's deceitfulness. Do you want to know how not to enter God's rest? Don't pay attention to how sin deceives you. That's how you don't enter the rest of God. Act like sin is not very deceptive at all. Act like you got it whipped. Act like you've risen above all that. Act like you're better than the person sitting next to you this morning in church. That's one way 
that you are guaranteed not to enter the rest of God. That was what happened to the Israelites. They somehow believed they knew better than Moses, they knew better than Aaron, they knew better than their neighbor. And eventually, over time, that deception set in so hard that they actually started to believe they knew better than God. That's the way sin works. It's very deceptive. It's very subtle in its deception. Just like the snake in the garden. It said about the snake, uh, there was no more subtle creature in all God's creation. The slithering sort of sneakiness of a snake was meant there to kind of stand for and symbolize the way sin slithers and whispers, you know, <laughs> whispers into our hearts, whispers into our ears. Have you ever heard, I know you've heard of propaganda before. Have you ever heard of black propaganda? Black propaganda. This is a, a term that refers to how during a war, uh, one side of the war might on purpose produce propaganda and somehow sneakily get it into the other side so that they'll believe something that's not true and let their guard down. Uh, one of the most famous examples of this was Nazi Germany in um, 1944. Flew over Denmark and they, they had changed their planes to look like British planes and they put British markings on it and they flew over at night and dropped down newspapers that were made exactly like Danish newspapers. The same title of the newspaper, I don't remember, I don't know what the title was, but Copenhagen Times or something like that. Uh, and they dropped it down and it said, look, you gotta surrender. The Russians are at your doorstep. Surrender to the Russians, victory is here. And the Nazis did that because they knew the Danish people didn't like the Russians. And it wouldn't have been good news to them, even though they were going to escape the Nazis. It would not have been good news in their minds for the Russians to now be in charge. And so the Nazis dropped it. Many, many people believed it. And what that did is that caused them to, instead of growing in their resolve to push the Nazis out, it turned their attentions over to the Russians who weren't really even a factor at that point in, in Denmark. Black propaganda. Almost every nation and almost every war has used this technique. I want to tell you, this scripture is telling us sin uses black propaganda every day. It insinuates things in our hearts that seem good to our eyes, but yet they're not good. And it insinuates them, it, it suggests them to us so that we will begin to doubt what God says or maybe even avoid hearing what God says. It starts very subtle. We don't even notice it. And yet what happens is the more we have doubted God's voice, the more we have avoided God's voice, the more hardened, it says, we are hardened by sin's deceitfulness, the more hardened and resistant we become to God's voice at all. And at that point, sin knows it has us. It says here that the Israelites were hardened, hardened, by the deceitfulness of sin. The greatest illustration of that was what I said a minute ago. Moses, have you brought us to the desert to die? Why did you disturb us? Wasn't it better when we were in slavery in Egypt? Can you think of a, more, a better example of the hardening of the heart against the voice of God than that? And yet I want, I want us to be aware this morning we need to be aware of the dynamic power of sin in our own lives. Did you hear that? You've got to be aware of this. If you're not aware of this, 
you, you won't hear the voice of the Lord and therefore you will not enter the rest of God because that's the key. The key is learning how to be underneath the, the shepherding hand of your maker, listening to his voice. Uh, it says there in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 3, uh, when we harden our hearts, we end up rebelling, we end up disobeying, we end up sinning, we end up being filled with unbelief. Sin's first line of attack is to attack your faith. It's to attack your faith. It's to get you to think, um, is it really true that the Bible says that? Is it really good that the Bible says that? Isn't there a better way for me to live my life than the way God is telling me? Or aren't the, isn't the Bible just full of suggestions, hints, life tips, rather than commandments from a, from a shepherd and maker and creator with a capital M and a capital S? All of that leads to the exhaustion of having no rest under the hand of the good shepherd. One of the great signs of that is a lack of joy in our lives. It is not joyful. Let me tell you this. It is, if you don't know it already, it is not joyful to think you're your own shepherd. There ain't no joy in it. There's no joy in it. Uh, I find this in my own life. Let me just open up a little bit to say this is how I see this working into my life, this very sermon. I find that sometimes I'm not exhausted so much by the work God has called me to do as I am by the work I'm trying to do underneath the work God has called me to do. And here's that work. Not only do I, am I called to be the pastor of the church and to do the things that a pastor is called by God to do, but somehow I get it into my mind, I'm also called to do God's job too. To change people's hearts, to persuade people of the good things of God, to, you know to grow the church, to make the church more healthy by my own sort of steam. The work underneath my work is not only am I doing what the shepherd sent the sheep to do, but I'm trying to be the shepherd too. And it is never going to work out. It's never going to lead to joy. It's never going to lead to fruitfulness if sheep like us also try to be not only sheep, but shepherds at the same time. What is the work underneath your work? <laughs> And it may be that you're exhausted from your work. Maybe you're working too much. That, that's a possibility. But I'm saying there's also another possibility. <laughs> that your work itself, God hasn't laid onto you a burden too big for you to bear, maybe. It's that you've laid on yourself a burden too big to bear. Because you're trying to be God. While at the same time being what God has called you to be. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's what Israel did. That's how we, if you want to avoid God's rest, that's how you can do it. Go do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Thirdly, here's how to enter God's rest. This is the positive part. This is chapter four here. I love what it says there in verse one. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest, what does it say? These are glorious words, right? These are some of the greatest words in the Bible here. The promise of entering God's rest, what? Say it out loud. Still stands. It still stands. This is part of the genius of his, his little mini sermon on Psalm 95. On Psalm 95, he's referring to several different time periods at once. And he's tracing out the theme of Sabbath throughout the whole Bible. He says, Sabbath began at creation. And on the first day, the first seventh day, God rested and he invited human beings into his rest. That was the first invitation that God gave to come to me and I will give you rest. But of course, Adam and Eve failed to do that, right? They sinned sort of right out of the gate. 
Well, then he goes on to say, God reiterated that promise to the Israelites when they were in, they were, they were delivered from Egypt. And God said to them, I want you to be my holy people. Keep my Sabbath day, enter into my rest, learn how to be under my hand. And yet they didn't either. Every one of them died in the wilderness before they ever got to the promised land. The next generation was the one who had to go in under Joshua and take the land. But it says here, look down at verse, um, verse 8, even Joshua didn't give them rest. Because we know that when they got into the land, the people kept doing what they did in the wilderness. They kept trying to be God. They kept trying to be the shepherd rather than being underneath the shepherd's hand. Well, then he says, at the time of David, you know, 1,400, you know, or... 400, 500 years after the Exodus, God once again issued an invitation through the mouth of David in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart like they did back then. You can enter my rest if you don't. You see what he's doing? He's tracing out the Sabbath theme. And he's saying, look, God, God offered it at the beginning. It was, it, they failed to enter it. God offered it to Israel. They failed to enter it. God offered it through David. They failed to enter it. And yet it still stands today. In fact, it stands today more glorious than it ever stood before. Because look at what he says there in verse nine, there is a greater Joshua. There is a greater Jesus, right? Who says, come unto me. If you're, if you labor and are heavy laden, if the work underneath your work is driving you into the dust, come unto me and I will give you rest. And so it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for Christians. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. I love that phrase because it sounds so contradictory. Make every effort to rest. You hear that? Make every effort to rest. And yet he says, Jesus is absolutely worth all the effort. What has happened finally at the end of history is God has finally delivered on what he had all along been promising through the Sabbath day. He's delivered his son who came into this world and died in our place so that our works are not required for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. He did all the works so that we can enter in and rest our lives on him completely. And when you rest your life on Jesus and you receive salvation, okay, you receive acceptance with God, and you receive his work in your heart to change you, not by works but by grace through faith, you can put an end to the work underneath your work. You can actually go and work for God just simply to work for God. Your work no longer has to be a quest on, you know, self-fulfillment and self, you know, all this stuff that we try to make it into. A quest to show that my life is justified because I'm doing good work. What is all that? The Bible never said it had to be that. Your life is justified through Jesus Christ. The work that he's called you to do is simply to be a, a, an expression of love and gratitude to him. That's what the Sabbath is about. At the very beginning of human life would be a day to just stop and rest in the work of someone else. And so it says there's another Sabbath day and you can enter it, but you've got to make every effort to enter it. In other words, God's Sabbath rest is not just a theory this morning. It's not a theory. It's not, I'm not trying to pitch you on an idea that you can think about. 
I'm trying to pitch you on something that you can actually do today. <laughs> you can literally enter, go inside God's rest and sit down. You can do that. That's why it says make every effort. Don't you know that entering in is really the, the proof of trust? Uh, you can say all day long, I believe airplanes are safe. I got the idea. Airplanes are safe. But if you refuse to ever board one, you obviously really don't trust that airplanes are safe. Right? You can say it all day long. I trust, And that's the same thing with Jesus. You can say, I trust in Jesus. Jesus is great. He's the savior of my, of my life. He died on the cross for my sins. You can say all that stuff. But unless you do what this passage is saying, actually enter into Jesus, board the plane, the trust is not there. You say, well, how do I board the plane? Here's two things I want to leave you with. And you see them at the end, the verses here. Two ways to board the plane with Jesus. Number one, Sabbath. Number two, word. And the two are highly related. Sabbath and word. Number one, Sabbath. Uh, when it says there, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, you could also translate that, there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. In other words, the fourth commandment to, to keep the Sabbath day is still a commandment. It hasn't, nothing has changed about that. Uh, the day has changed because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, and it's the Lord's day. But the command to stop and to appear before the Lord in your life is still very much there. And in fact, if you don't have a pattern of one day a week stopping and appearing before the Lord, then you're like the guy who says, I trust in the airplane, but you're not entering the plane. You say, well, are you saying I'm not a Christian? No, not necessarily, but I'm saying this. You're certainly not experiencing the rest that a Christian is. It's a Christian's by birthright. It's no wonder that you're wore out, right? It's no wonder that you're always doing the work underneath the work rather than just the work itself. Because you're not learning how to, as it says in Psalm 95, come and worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord your maker. Worship is, is the greatest revealer of what's really in our hearts or the lack thereof. And it's also the greatest teacher of our hearts. <laughs> and so if we're avoiding the Sabbath, look what it says. I mean, it says it very clearly. Those who enter God's rest rest from their works like God did from his. Well, how did God do it from his? He worked six days and rested the seventh. So if you're not working six days and resting the seventh, then you're not entering God's rest. The scripture is clear on that from beginning to end. The Lord's day, Jesus said, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's made for your benefit. It's made for my benefit because without it, God's word is going to be a foreign language. We're not going to be familiar with God. We're not going to be on speaking terms with the Lord if we never go over to his house and sit and hear and pray and search our hearts and as the Bible says, rend our hearts, rip them in half before the Lord. Isn't that right? Well, the second thing related to it is word. Not only is there Sabbath, but word. And the two things are related because the Sabbath is based and focused on the Word. And the Word teaches us to keep the Sabbath. The two things kind of mutually reinforce one another. And it says there in verses 12 through 13 that the Word of God is alive. 
and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. In other words, if you're not, the word of God is so powerful, he's saying. If you're listening to it today and you're hardening your heart, you're really ripping yourself off. Because there's nothing in this world like the word of God. What the Bible says, God says, present tense. The Holy Spirit says it this morning. If you don't listen to it and take it in and digest it inwardly in your heart, then what you can only get from God's word, you will find nowhere else. There is no other alternative to it. And so there's got to be a few couple of practices in our lives, week by week, day by day. There's got to be a word practice in your life where you're picking this thing up and reading it. Or you're having somebody read it to you or however you do it best. Get it, get the word of God into these ears somehow, <laughs> somehow, some way. And do that in a posture of speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. There also has to be a weekly practice of stopping what you're doing, whatever it is, however good it may be, and coming to appear before the presence of your maker. That matters. That matters not just when we're here in the church building. It matters when you're at home on the Sabbath day. Learning how throughout the whole day of Sunday. Make it every Sunday is a Father's Day. With a capital F. Your heavenly father. It belongs to him. He picked it from the beginning. He picked it by raising his son from the dead on this day. Honor that. (laughs) And if you honor that, what Jesus says, you'll find it to be true. Come to me. It's the greatest invitation. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Rest.